0: Welcome to Seed Phrase, a podcast speaking with people close to art, blockchains, or both. I'm Simon Denny, an artist who unpacks stories about technologies. For each episode, I ask a guest to choose 12 words, their personal seed phrase, which gets minted as an NFT. Like the key to a crypto wallet, the seed phrase unlocks our conversation. For this episode, I had the opportunity to speak with Penny Rafferty, an artist and critic who's also known under the aliases of Omsk Social Club and Black Swan Dow. Across these projects, Penny is interested in playtesting new ways of sharing, decision-making, practicing, and investigating amongst groups of peers, areas she's also explored through Radical Friends, a research project and book with Ruth Catlow, which locates DAOs as one of the most important long-term use cases of blockchains in the art world. In this conversation, she offers a nuanced definition of DAOs, explores how tools and skills drawn from DAO thinking can be applied in non-technical spaces and traces her own personal history of politically engaged exploration in both art and emerging technology.
1: Yes, yeah, so I mean, I guess as every cultural worker, the root or pathway is always sort of riddled with maybe misguided or misjudged, and then other roots kind of coming in and out of um, our journey to this uh, place called the art world. <laughs> um, and I guess mine is no different in a way. Um, I mean, I've always been drawn to the arts, uh, sometimes through the inability to be able to perform. Socially or academically elsewhere, hmm. um, but I, does that
0: mean you've wanted to work elsewhere, or have? I mean, were you I, trained elsewhere? I mean, or, or,
1: I mean, kind of, of course, in like some way. I mean, I, my upbringing was never guided towards cultural working. Mm-hmm. You know, it was more: you get a job, you pay your bills, yeah. and you can live a a somewhat survivalist lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Um, So in a lot of ways, art wasn't part of my daily bread. I would say probably much more was sort of the slippage out of society. And I think also art sort of gave some backing or foundation to that. So from a very young age, I was, like, involved in, like, punk, hardcore, illegal raves. Mm -hmm. And where where geographically was
0: this? uh, uh,
1: The north of England mm -hmm. predominantly and then uh, overflowing into Glasgow, which coincidentally also was where I took my art education Mm -hmm. at Glasgow School of Art. Um, Not that I managed to turn up a lot of the time. (laughs) However, I did find it... Some of my most sort of educational moments really came from that period, mostly from the peers that I met Mm. and also from the way in which Glasgow is structured is that a lot of social... Political and cultural happenings often engage uh, in tandem together. Mm. So whether that be from the sort of underground clubbing scene or the pubs, as you can see, I'm painting a very unsober picture of myself. Sure. Which is well, it doesn't true. necessarily
0: mean you're participating in.
1: Oh, absolutely. The well, substance side of that, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. And I think you know, in a in a certain way, like that's what my work has always been about is been about these communal moments, whether that's been addressing them directly through working with role play or whether that's been about paper prototyping them, which is really sort of what drew me towards thinking about DAOs. And this is also, I think, probably really important to say is that how I un- came across DAOs was I was coming predominantly out of a sort of exited art world into Black Bok politics in Berlin. And so I was spending a lot of time around house projects and around political groups and that were manifesting in Berlin at around 2018.
0: Did you move to Berlin then? Or like from London? Were you in London? No, you were in Glasgow. I moved
1: to Berlin when I was 21 from Glasgow.
0: Okay. So you've been in Berlin a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: From that point... There was a few moments inside these groups through various different actions that the central governance uh, structure became a little too close hmm. to our skins. And this sort of um, dissipated the group or put the group on hold. Um I think it's very normal within political activism for the state to often drag out legal disciplines and duties, which really sort of creates a frozen asset in terms of um, political motivation and action, because you're, everything that you have in that landscape then basically gets attached mm. to the open file So this is quite often, I think, what um, terminates or at least frees over different political groups. And that's sort of what happened to the group that I was connected to and working with. And at that point, I needed to to make money. Right. Um, And so I started writing art uh, theory and criticism. Right. Which wasn't the best way to make money, as you can <laughs> yes, it's, like, it's not one of the
0: most lucrative paths in art. That's, uh, no. Yeah.
1: But through this, I, another writer suggested that I attended this uh, Sasfe Summer School. Huh. Um, and through that, I met um, Ben Vickers.
0: Now, the Sasfe Summer Art School is something that is organized by another artist, right? This Is uh, is this what it's, you're talking about? Um, is,
1: Barry Shravinsky yeah. and Warren Niedersh. Exactly.
0: Yeah. And that actually once happened in Sassfei. Which
1: was the one I went which to.
0: Which is the first one and the one mm-hmm. you went to. And then since yeah. then has uh, taken place in Berlin, I think. Is yes. that right? Yeah, yeah,
1: in connection with Spike magazine. Right.
0: So Sasfe, you're literally in the mountains in, in Switzerland. Literally in the mountains. And you meet an interesting man called Ben Vickens. I did,
1: yeah. And it was... What I, year is this?
0: 2017? No.
1: Oh, maybe. Not
0: earlier, maybe, huh?
1: No, this was in like 20. I actually moved here in 2008, not 2018. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Yeah, maybe around 2017. Um, you
0: met Ben in, exactly. in the Swiss Alps? Yeah. Exactly.
1: And at that point, he was creating this project called A Monastery. Mm hmm. It was like a sort of very instantaneous, um, I think, political and social um, connection that we had. And we continued to be friends after um, this initial meeting. And then he invited me to come to An Monastery in Greece.
0: Can you describe UnMonastery? Because I know another group of people who are kind of art and crypto adjacent also went to these things. I'm Mm -hmm. thinking of um, Kia Kreutler was also at that event.
1: Exactly. This Uh, is who I wanted to go on to uh, next. Can you describe
0: (laughs) what UnMonastery is though? Because I think it's even more significant than maybe the SESFA Institute for this story, right? Like is, is the context of what that was and tried to be.
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I guess with all of these things, unmonastery probably has a multitude of definitions. But for the sort of front-facing um, definition, I would say that unmonastery was a group of cultural thinkers, workers, activists, technologists, and hackers who placed themselves in monastic living conditions that they had created themselves, but through heavy investigation of other communities, whether that be religious or political or social. And they would formulate around different Areas, so physical geographical locations, and create and develop new tools for uh, infrastructures and societies that reside in these um, geographical locations. Mm. So, the um, monastery that I went to was on top of Mount Olympus, mm. so alongside the gods was also a group of villages. And part of the investigation there was about creating a mesh network between these villages and how they would use and formulate um, information through this mesh network. Mm. And I think one of the very, very interesting parts for me was... Understanding the sort of relevance of these technologies through alternative um, groups of people who wouldn't necessarily be, um, let's say, the nascent users of uh, these technologies. And I thought that was incredibly brave because in a way it sort of hacked the technology very, very quickly Mm. and very early on because... um, I think a lot of these technologies, they typically grow through charismatic leaders hoping and producing a certain sort of set of faith and belief around them and what happens if you give them to people who don't believe in them. Mm. Um, And also alongside that, uh, the monastic living routine really drew me in. Um, I think... Yeah, speaking about my early days of social gatherings, I I was very often into these kind of extreme ways of living and communicating together. Hmm. And also the group of people that I met there, many of them have become lifelong allies in terms of the knowledge and practice, and I think also emotional guidance hmm. in navigating this space of art and technology. Yeah.
0: Sounds like a transformational moment.
1: Yeah. yeah, sort of. And I didn't really know it at the time. It was like a very, very long, slow sort of process. Yeah. Um, but I definitely think, like, you know, people like here were... You know, they they resonated um, mm. very strongly and made me very inquisitive. Mm. And I think that's also sort of led on to me then taking these new and emergent theories back to the communities that I was um, part of previously.
0: And that's in organizing and in art at the same time, yeah. let's say. yeah, mm-hmm. It's so interesting that that resonates because one of the people I had on the first – couple of moments of C phrase was Jaya Clara Brecker, and she described her interest in blockchain and politics coming out of her experience organizing too, and her frustrations with some of the limitations of the governance structures of those informal communities. And I'm I'm hearing that that's possibly something you resonate with. I know you also organized a conversation where she voiced some of those ideas as well recently. And maybe this is like jumping around a little bit, but I thought maybe it's time to... um, Yeah, get into some of the more concrete projects that then came out of this community conversation that you then had that maybe started at some of these moments. Because I guess one of the things that I think is really special about what you do is that you focus on creating groups and aliases. You're not Penny Rafferty very often, actually. (laughs) Uh, In the world, you're more often, I know, your work as Omsk and as Black Swan and other types of explicitly radical friends, other types of collective production first. Do you want to go through the various monarchists that, um, <laughs> that have come out of this conversation that you started and maybe talk about, I don't know, one at a time, uh, these types of things? Uh, yeah. Want, I yeah.
1: mean, each one of them is like a different testbed, I think. Yeah. Um, and I think also each one of them comes out of a certain set of peers that have resonated around me at that particular moment. And so it's almost as if, like, those social groups almost create sort of the the building blocks and inspiration for these alias groups. Hmm. Um, I think this sort of methodology just al- always came out of um, me feeling way more comfortable with, like being in group formations yeah. rather than being alone. I think that's also because I find that it stretches my my own opinions and my own critique um, quicker hmm. and further than I could ever do alone. Um, and so, yeah, I guess like from a monastery, which I guess was like the fuel of understanding how political organizing could overlap into the art world. And, of course, at that moment, the political groups that I was part of were at a standstill. So I had to find a space where I could continue practicing and investigating. And what Unmonastery really taught me was the way that politics could sit under this umbrella of art and be funded and basically create radical concepts and fairly dangerous ideas, but without the interest of the police. Hmm. And as soon as that sort of hit me, because also, of course, like even in the moments when I was part of um, these illegal raves or these underground factory clubs, you know, they were also highlighted by the police, like, throughout my entire life, I feel like I've been part of these communities that have always um, been in dispute with the sort of, I guess, governance or authoritarian structures of the state. Hmm. And so for the first time, I recognized that you could do it differently.
0: Right, which is a context you were already familiar with from your (laughs) art school, right? But you didn't see it earlier, or you think you didn't even encounter that possibility earlier in the art that you were exposed to
1: no I think I feel like when I was at art school for me the understanding was that you mimicked the bourgeoisie Hmm. and almost that you needed to get rid of yourself if you were anything otherwise Hmm. Um, maybe that was also my very young highly conflicted insecurity sure (laughs) um but I would like to think that it wasn't yeah
0: (laughs) sure no I mean I teach at an art school I'm part of that apparatus and uh I also I mean I chose a different way through I guess whereas I I fully embraced that character of uh (laughs) The, you know, uh, the person who seeks the dominant systems of the art world and to participate in them, that's where I saw the promise early for my own activities.
1: Yeah, I needed a little longer convincing. Yeah, but maybe you <laughs> also
0: found a more productive way in where you also knew what by the time you started using that tool, let's say, what it was for or something like that. Maybe. Right?
1: Yeah. yeah, so from, from that, um, I mean, I'd also, being connected to... LARP and role-playing um, through Unmonastery, monastery through Ben, and then also understanding the political potential of that, um, how to problem-solve or um, create hypostitions of arguments around it. Then the sort of realization that I could get funding in order to, like, use this mechanic um, was... Yeah, rather eye-opening, I guess. And that was the, I guess, the initial birth of Um Social Club, which is still predominantly role-played, installational art format that really does reside, I guess, within the contemporary art world. And alongside that, I was also, well, writing, mm. trying to make money, and... I'd managed to, through writing art criticism, I'd managed to cr- uh, connect to a group of curators and writers uh, based in Berlin. Katrin Meyer, Kate Brown, um, Chloe Stead um, were a number of them, Maureen also. And we had sort of created this group of, I guess, back chat. Kind of, in a way. (laughs) Like, it was this moment in 2018 where gentrification was really taking hold. A lot of deals were being done with institutions, um, predominantly with temporary properties, in order to create cultural cachet and capita. And also, it was sort of these moments where you're seeing, like, the rupture of statistical evidence against the inequality of gender, race, pay gaps, and so forth. And so we sort of, I mean, I remember how it started with Catherine was like screaming at the top of our voices in the pogo bar about uh, the inequality of Museums to artists and this sort of grooming tendencies that occurred. Mm. And we sort of all connected together and we had many conversations. Eventually, this resided in um, a talk that was for the Berlin Art Prize. Mm, This was, I think, at the end of 2018. And whilst we were speaking about these tendencies of how, I think actually Kate Brown really coined this term grooming. Mm. So this idea that there wasn't any help or aid or faith um, in the production of the artist before it gets to a certain level. So where an artist cuts their teeth, like typically with like unpaid internships, um, project spaces, peer aid, that none of this really gets recognized. And then eventually they get to a certain level and the galleries and museums will just sort of cream off the top. (laughs) And I guess the crux of our... Argument was how do we reverse this how do we how do we become recognized for the work that is poured into this um, these careers and how do we demand that this initial phase of a um, cultural worker or artist is actually recognized and compensated? And whilst I was having these conversations with These women. Um, This was also when I guess like the sort of early um, excitement around DAOs was occurring. Yeah. And like sort of laying parallel, there was sort of, I don't know, a moment where I thought, I mean, actually, I think the key point where I thought that maybe this was possible to utilize the local Berlin case um, and to create a DAO for it or a DAO format was through reading uh, Ruth Catlow's book, um, Artists Rethinking the Blockchain. Right. Yeah. I didn't actually know Ruth at that time.
0: Interesting. Yeah.
1: And I sort of recognized how artists at that moment were actually – manipulating or mutating these technologies Mm. to serve their own purposes rather than sort of, um, staying true to the code.
0: Yeah. Maybe we can take a, a little bit of a a scoop into that book because I think that's something that I found at the time. So I'm in that book or kind of in that book. Like I, there's an interview between uh, me and uh, one of the, one of the co-editors of the book, um, In there. But there's also Terra Zero in in that book. There's also Rhea Myers in that book. A number of other people that I was sort of casually in dialogue around that time. And we were all kind of like looking for a way to. A way to find blockchain useful for art because we all saw exactly the, the the kind of proposition you were talking about. But I also didn't really know Ruth either and that book kind of came out of nowhere for me. This guy, I think cold emailed me somehow and was like, hey, I want an interview with you about what you're doing. And I had no idea that other people were interested in this really that much. Yeah. I had a little bit of an idea that Ben was... Fishing around uh, in that direction. But that was 17, I think, that that came out because that was uh, – or at least it was when it was it put was together. It was just
1: before DAOs. Yeah, like right. Exactly. Yeah. Because
0: also by the time I was doing proof of work, like this little um, group show that I curated in 2018, like that was – I knew all those people kind yeah. of. I think that world had become more visible to me. Um But, yeah, so it's just interesting just to note how how out of left field that came. Um, Totally. And that was, like, from Furtherfield, maybe another organization that you want to underline how it inspired you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that Furtherfield simultaneously, which also is super interesting because – Actually, within the artistic practice of um social Club, Furtherfield hosted the workshop units of the first um exhibition and live work, a seventy two hour sleep deprivation work called Dead Air at Furtherfield. Ah. And then the um piece Which- itself was a gossamer fog. So that was also another very interesting overlay at that point was their interest in also using LARP and role play and mm. um, to stimu- simulate uh, different worlds. I mean, I think what's also – I love this kind of unpacking because it shows this, this web I know. <laughs> yeah. and how many sediments and layers mm. – and it's definitely not sort of vertical or even horizontal. It's yeah. sort of... Um, Rosematic, if yes, you will. <laughs> yes, exactly. I guess that's why they use that word. <laughs> but, yeah, it wasn't until many years later um, that I actually met Ruth in person, and that was um, through Ben, um, and that was at a moment where I had written the paper prototype yeah. of Black Swan Down. Right. And initially, that writing was, I guess, I mean, it was sort of calling calling my bluff a little bit, I think, because huh. Tirad at that moment was working at Kunstwerker. Right,
0: a, con- a curator of contemporary art who is interested not in art and technology things. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: And he was doing this program called Reality. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, the few times that I met him, I really, I think, could come across extremely opinionated. And he sort of called my bluff and said, okay, I have this this amount of funding. Will you show me how this could be done?
0: That's so interesting. And maybe this is something I want to link to another part of the conversation which I think we should get into is um, I would like a definition of DAOs from you. Um, <coughs> if, for, but before that, I'll to give you a little anecdote as well because Teda was also talking to me at that time. And I was in a phase of being extremely bearish around all of these things. I was not convinced that there was a future in using this um, methodology. And he came to me with the same proposition to say, like, hey, we have this money. Uh Kunstwerk is suddenly very interested in, in blockchains. So I was like, okay, about time. Like, cool, <laughs> cool, cool, bro. Uh, and then, like, uh, and, and and how that they can be you know productively used to proposition different ways of working etc etc and i was like yeah i just see it as a um as a new infrastructure for speculation and that's it i don't see any promise in this other um side of it um no thank you at the time which was interesting so i'm glad i did that so that you could do a better job (laughs) but yeah
1: maybe
0: maybe to say like um uh Black Swan is a kind of a dao, right? And maybe you can say what you think daos are, what is productive from that definition of where you see the kind of out there in the world definition of dao mm-hmm. for your own invocation of daos in in Black Swan.
1: I mean, a dao is a piece of software. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the original sort of um intention or manifestation of DAOs was a resource collection scheme that allowed users to pool resources and then through the execution of code, those resources would be um, paid out or pooled. Um, I think that in itself wasn't really the most interesting thing for me (laughs) in terms of what DAOs could do. Um, I think I was fascinated by DAOs because I understood them to be um, micro-governance states that not only held opinions and dreams and aspirations, but also had this pooling of funding to be able to physically approach some of those aspirations. And what I was also really interested in is quite often in social organizing there's a stream of conversational decision making that often is affected like through charisma and alienation of the group itself whereas What I was interested about does was maybe the more sort of simplistic paper trail of how decisions and votes could be archived over a period of time Mm. and how you could—because it's a much slower process than a plenum or a people's mic— you could also improve the way you participate in governance structures and you could observe how other people play the game of governance. And I think for me what the sort of radical potential of DAOs was was if you could do that on a small level, you would be allowing groups of people to reskill themselves mm. with um the tools of um, opinion and decision making which I think I mean I I'm, I'm from the UK um you know I was born just after Thatcher in the north of England like not not in London and I think that over the decades, um, people have been slowly stripped of their confidence to to create change. Yeah. And I thought that um, DAOs would be sort of underground sort of prototypes that um, could sort of foster these movements to be then taken above ground.
0: mm so there's kind of like a, like a, almost like a narrative potential of a of a, of a new unit that could be occupied with energy and confidence that didn't come from other stories that were being told that might have been exhausted in a in a longer line of organizing possibilities. Is that is that yeah, fair to kind say? of yeah, like, yeah.
1: Um, and I mean, of course, you know, I'm like intrinsically looking at that through like a left wing lens, sure. Um, But obviously, with the complete understanding that that can tip (laughs) very quickly over to the right, I don't think that um, DAOs are inherently left-wing technology. I don't don't think any technology is uh, one political way or the other. Um, So yeah, I just want to mention that I think, I guess I wanted um, the left wing to place pins in those technologies before the right did.
0: Yeah. And Black Swan was the collective vehicle to do that for you. And and can yeah. you can you talk about how you guys implemented that possibility, those those potentials?
1: I mean it made sense uh, considering my newfound knowledge of art funding mm-hmm. um to play with these potential arenas uh, inside the art world. Also callously so maybe. I understood the artist at, at that time as being more fair game than um, a political group or a working class community. Um,
0: because everybody opts in. They all know the score. So yeah. you can kind of like try things out that also have a few sides to them.
1: Exactly, and also the sort of diversity level that you have access to within the arts. Is and that
0: high or low?
1: I would say that's high. Hmm.
0: Diversity on what axis?
1: Um I think, like, through generation, upbringing, internationality. Yeah. Um, also, I think personality. Hmm. I think that you can find across the board um, from empathetic to egotistical. Um, And I guess this is somewhat kept in check more within other communities. Huh.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was talking in the previous conversation um, with Mitchell Chan about how inefficiencies uh, and built-in redundancy creates space for possibility in the art world <laughs> and this might be enforcing this thesis then as well <laughs> I don't know i like cringing with it <laughs> like, I write that
1: one? <laughs> yeah so so from this curt um, overview <laughs> um, yeah then we had this paper prototype of Black Swan, mm-hmm. um, a speculative white paper. And from this, then a number of peers and colleagues, um, Laura Lati, Callum Borden, Leith Benhenke, started to congregate around this potential idea that maybe we could actually um, bring Black Swan into a physicality. Yeah. Um, simultaneously at that time, I had actually begun to work with Ruth and we had, alongside the Goethe Institute for the Field and Serpentine Galleries, um, begin to think about um, creating these prototypes and think tanks um, of DAOs um, across the globe, five different ones, and trying to also create a similar web, I think, to um, artists rethinking the blockchain, but through um, artists and activists using DAO thinking. And this ran for around two years. Mm. Uh, through the blockchain lab in Serpentine, um, initially as a sort of vehicle for research and development, which also gave us enough funds to um, create the first iteration and tooling of Black Swan, which was Signet.
0: Right, exactly. Which is actually a a piece of software that you can use. Right. Do you, you want to talk about what Signet? Is
1: yeah, Signet yeah, was developed through that program, um, but at Trust um, in Berlin, mm-hmm. um, which is a
0: collective the... co-, co-, co co working space. Yeah, for utopian dreams or something like that. I, I forget <laughs> Conspiratorial the byline, but yeah, conspirat- <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Dreams. Yeah. yeah, that Callum uh, uh, also co-founded, yeah, right? One with of your Arta. black swaners. Yeah, yeah.
1: exactly. Yeah. Um, And so the working groups resided there uh, physically and they created a set of working groups that um, tried and tested different methodologies um, around decision-making and resource allocation. Um, So they did things like emoji voting um, raffles, and they also tried and tested quadratic voting, right. which was in the original um, white paper that I wrote as the preferred methodology at that time. Yeah, And this uh, actually comes from Radical Exchange.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because I came across uh, quadratic voting by reading a book called Radical Markets.
1: Exactly, by uh, Glen Weill.
0: E-, e. Glenn Weill, right? Yeah. <laughs> by E. Glenn Weill. Uh, and, um, yeah, can you explain what Radical Markets and Radical Exchange is and, and how you came to know them and come across, and maybe through that to a definition of quadratic voting?
1: I mean, I kind of don't want
0: to do that. <laughs> oh, sure, yeah.
1: Only because, like, I mean, I came across some similarly through Ruth, who proposed um, to work on this project at the Radical Exchange, uh, one of the Radical Exchange meetups that they did in America, but the project didn't go ahead.
0: Okay. So
1: basically I sort of did my research.
0: Right. Ready for a project that never happened.
1: Ready for a project that that never happened. But, I mean, I think what really stuck to me anyway, about that book was how they demarcated quadratic voting as a system that took into account um, different socio-emotional and also ecological factors Mm -hmm. around voting and how incomprehensible a system of one vote, one person really actually is when we take take into consideration the complexity of the human agent. Right. Um, because
0: since the human is not a self, right? It's,
1: exactly. But something
0: like that, right? There's many things that make up the placeholder that is the self or whatever.
1: Yeah, and, and also I think like the framing of absolutism, yeah. of decision mm-hmm. is. Um, Actually, inherently problematic. Hmm. At the time of reading this, I was also really fascinated with um, Boris Groys' research on um, astrological shifts and voting systems.
0: Hmm. I do not know anything, but I know <laughs> some things about Boris Yeltsin. But I did not know that he was interested in astrological shifts yes. and voting practices.
1: So well. he created a whole archive of research and um, around what was happening in the stars, um, and who was basically being voted in to power. No way. Yes. <laughs> like, and there is a direct correlation, it would seem. What I really enjoyed about, like, reading these two in parallel was, like, gray is, like, so epic. But then when you think about um, the yeah, radical markets, quadratic voting um, systems, you can, you can make this, like, very, very micro as well. You know, if people are voting on a Saturday when that's normally their day off, in the middle of winter, that will be a very different effective vote, (laughs) I (laughs) guess. So, you can see the ways in which um, you can also play or rig um, voting to a sort of emotional outset. Um, so yeah, it's taking where were we?
0: <laughs> well, it's taking a wider view of who the voter is and what yeah, that does, right? And exactly, and, and and maybe yeah, quadratic voting changes that. How? What? What does quadratic voting offer that one so, one person one vote doesn't?
1: Quadratic uh, voting offers a number of voice credits. Right. So let's say a hundred voice credits, and you then place your voice credits on the different proposals that you. Um, wish to support, those voice credits are divided by the square root, which means that actually if you put a very high number, a high percentage of your voice credits on a single application, the division of that by the square root is a less powerful number than if you have a smaller demarcation of voice credits. So actually if you spread out your voice credits across the um Applications or proposals, then you will have a stronger voice.
0: Right. So it actually encourages people to say both and rather than exactly. this only. Right. It's, yeah. It's it's for more pluralistic signals.
1: And so the the hope being that the conclusion of the voting process would be um, a more majority share of um, interest. Mm-hmm and what i thought was also interesting in terms of this quadratic voting and looking at the testbed of the art world is that quite often i would hear people speaking about the controversial nature of a cv and how like simple naming systems would uh, disregard content. So if you saw X institution or X artist, that you would be more interested because you un- you understand that name has been awarded a certain amount of significance, that you will be instantly drawn to right. understanding that that, cr- that end product will be x because it is known for x
0: right so what you're saying is like the uh like the symbolic value of the kind of brand nodes be it names or institutions in the art world obscure the content around them yeah especially when people are looking at uh important things like cvs which kind of tell you what people have done
1: exactly so when
0: i see the name serpentine i like don't bother reading uh the next entry no uh, it's
1: like it's oh just, it, yeah, gold that's star just, yeah right uh. <laughs> which, you know, I'm also not trying to um, de-rank anyone in the process of this, but it was also very much reflecting on how do you help support emerging artists. And so in that case, you don't really want to have this symbolic um, attachment to certain names um, or gestures. And so how do you aim for everybody to read the proposal and read the content instead of utilizing this sort of skimming action, um, which was also a byproduct of quadratic voting in terms of like because you have to uh, disseminate your votes in a certain way. It's not that you can like find the top three with the symbolic value. Yeah. Okay, Uh, um, assign that amount of votes to them, but that you would have to read through the content in order to um, create that decision.
0: Right. So in that kind of blockchain way, it's sort of it's an incentive structure rescheduling in a way, which is what a lot of uh, my understanding of like blockchain systems try to do. One of the things that we were talking about when I talked about with Jaya was about her project that she's mm-hmm. working on at the moment, Nim, which is all about a privacy thing. But one of the things that it adds uh, on top of previous. Uh, Iterations of privacy attempts on the web is a financial incentive to making sure the infrastructure still exists and works properly. And you're taking this uh, with the, with the Dow proposition and quadratic voting as a yeah. way to, uh, uh, again, give people more incentive to pay attention to the, the quote-unquote real content rather than the symbolic value which our systems are so kind of um, attuned to and used to yeah. using, right, as, as their primary content.
1: Yeah, yeah totally. And, I mean, maybe it's also important to say at this point that the way that Black Swan works is also slightly different to other DAOs in the way that a typical DAO, the the users and the stakers, is the same thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas Black Swan creates silent stakeholders that fill the resource pool, and then the users are the ones that have the votes.
0: Right. So and the silent stakeholders in in this case often being institutions or places where capital comes from in yeah. the art world. So uh, if i'm uh, a serpentine or a house of the world cultures and i want to participate in black swan i can become a liquidity supplier uh, exactly. to to the very pool easily. yeah <laughs> um, but it doesn't give me any votes necessarily no. just the fact that i've given my liquidity to this project
1: no yeah. you have no vote <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah very interesting and 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 that is somehow solidified uh, in in the signet like the quadratic voting Possibility as a tool set for artists is is somehow um, reified in this Cygnet piece of software exactly. that you guys did. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: So you would have – within Signet, you would have a list of resources that mm-hmm. are given over by the silent stakeholder. And then maybe looping back around to uh, previous research, Signet's also used on the moon cycle. Hmm. So uh, on the new moon, you put in your proposal to the group, um, which through occultist means is uh, where you set your intention. And the new moon, the dark moon, and as the light comes through to the full moon, that's actually when the voting is finished and your project comes into light. So, so beautiful. <laughs> so this also maybe works on an alternative um, time keeping mm. scale as mm. well that is um, set to yeah, the lunar cycle as opposed to our traditional Gregorian calendar. Yeah. So that's, that's sort of, yeah, Cigna wrapped up, um, which very excitingly has gone through uh, many different test runs and beta runs now and is very, very soon about to be open source to other DAOs.
0: Oh, that's so exciting. So I can also <laughs> potentially access that yeah. with uh, one of my .com seance DAOs if I exactly. want. Exactly, Yeah. Right. yeah. That's not the only thing that you guys did as a group, as far as I understand it. One of the other things that I came across of Black Swan was something else that you've mentioned that is part of, I think, maybe your artistic toolkit in a broader way beyond this project, but you have organized LABs mm-hmm. as um, iterations, and these are kind of maybe some of the closest things that end up as, like, art events, right? Yeah. They exist in art institutions. They sort of feel like a happening or a performance. Can you go into some of the... The LARPs that have been organized under the Black Swan moniker?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's been a few now. Um, I mean, maybe the sort of most uh, recent and largest one was uh, similar again at KW. I feel like I'm like a resident there now. <laughs> <I'm> like,
0: <laughs> You're not the only one. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Leon like joked the other day, I'd gone through three generations of curators. Like, there you go. <laughs> I don't know what's happening to them all. But yeah, we, through, as a sort of a side dish to Michael Stevenson's solo show, we were asked to, well, actually to do a talk. But that soon got a little bit out of hand and ended up. Do you know,
0: Michael. So to, for those of you who don't know the work, Michael Stevenson is actually a New Zealand born artist, so some, a fellow countryman uh, of my origin um, who makes allegorical conceptual installations, I would say, that unpack power and money and uh, history a little bit. Um, Did you know the work of his before you were asked to be a part of this conversation?
1: I knew it a little bit, but I wouldn't say that I understood the complexity of it until, (laughs) I mean, it's it's amazing to listen to him speak through, you know, from the the materiality to the direction uh, to what it was interfacing politically and technologically at the time. And also, like, his own personal story that resides within it as well.
0: Yeah, it's a deep cut. Um, but anyway, so you were approached to be a part of this.
1: Exactly. Um, through Anna Gritz. And we decided that what we really wanted to look at was how different communities had created protocols around resource management. Right. So obviously we wanted to look at that through the lens of DAOs as, as we were um, positioning them. Um, so that was fictionalized in a DAO called the Venture Commune. And then we also had the Guild Commune and the Cult Commune. Oh, I forgot in the last.
0: There was a fourth, right? There
1: was a fourth, yeah. it was one about the individual, but I can't remember. What
0: it, it was called. But anyway, yeah. people were invited to come yeah. and occupy these roles, right?
1: Exactly. So we created an open call, um, which... Um, gave the prospective participant a series of questions that actually we then harvest and brought into the game itself based very loosely sort of on um, these personality tests that you can um, complete.
0: Or like ocean and stuff like that? or like, yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. Um, or like a very sort of and Yeah, notion. And so from this we allocated each commune with 12 participants who were then given a set of resources that we had um, collected uh, from various silent stakeholders who'd pledged these resources to the hackathon. And we'd actually asked them to decide which commune they wanted to pledge it to. So eventually, as we began the hackathon, which was 48 hours, of course, the distribution was already, what's the word? Unequal, Skewed. yes. Yeah. <laughs> and.
0: What did people want to do most? Be po- which commune was the most popular?
1: I mean, the the cult commune was pre- pretty <laughs> popular, like, at least to the silent stakeholders, which is very funny because it was very much uh, based around the idea of the individual artist who had a factory huh. of <laughs> workers who would be creating the pinnacle um, art object. And yet that really spoke to a lot of the silent <laughs> stakeholders. Um, but then... You know, there was also the venture commune, which in the end seemed to actually create the the broader organizational front because they managed to convince other communes to pledge their resources into a wider resource distribution pool. Law. Of course. It wasn't um <laughs> set up conclu- it wasn't a scripted <laughs> event. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah, and then, I mean, the poor guild, like, they had nothing, really. <laughs> they had, like, the smallest room. They had, yeah, they just had so many energy drinks, but not much resources. But Yikes. they really, I think people really sort of, um, they were terrified of them. But I think they also understood the ferociousness of, like, um, the way that they organized was a sort of pure passion project right. because they didn't have much. Yeah. And I think also what maybe is important about these role plays is they're not created in the similar way to LARP, which is to unpack a story and come to a certain sort of set of chapters. Right. Um, but instead they're very much sort of set up as open-ended Propositions, So you can put into place, like, yeah, these four communes. You can put um, boundaries and walls up. You know, it lasts for 48 hours. They get fed. They, I mean, they, they didn't sleep. Well, some of them slept, but some of them stayed up all night trying to hack through how to win the commune distribution. Um, they didn't leave, any of them, which I think was also... Yeah, I mean, the sort of adrenaline of that as well in uh, KW is a a fairly labyrinth um, type building. So with people running around at all hours, sometimes quite crazed as like the exchange closed and so forth is always really special to see. And I think also these role plays, they're not only there to sort of test your assumptions, but they're also there to hold up mirrors to your own actions.
0: Yeah. I remember actually – it's funny. I was going to a party that weekend <laughs> <laughs> and uh, an artist friend of mine and a, a person I'd never met uh, met me at this party just having come off the back of this uh, event. And uh, I I just, yeah, it was, and I can, I remember some of the um, residue from their excitement um, (laughs) spilling out into the party context. And I was really impressed actually at how effective it seemed to be because, you know, I'm always a little bit scared of performances and like uh, I'm somebody that, How do you put this? I feel like all of life is a performance. So the idea of adding another layer of performance onto an already existing performance uh, often seems to me like uh, rather just more work. So I was, again, like super impressed at at the effectiveness (laughs) of of how this obviously played out. So, yeah. I
1: mean, it was, yeah. It's also like an extremely wonderful, like hardcore group of people that turn up to these things, Right, (laughs) self-selective. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs>
0: um, I, I, I know that um, I want to touch on a few more parts of your of your projects. Um, and, I mean, we've talked a little bit about OMS, not really, but uh, but maybe we can also talk about Radical Friends because mm-hmm. it's also come up in uh, like a recent publication and, and like quite a, let's say, a, quite a concrete outcome. Um, do you want to talk about the formation of that, Monica, about uh, who's involved in that and about the process of producing this recent event and book? Yeah. yeah.
1: Um so Radical Friends is really held by myself and Ruth Catlow. But as by the very nature of the moniker itself it also pays homage to all the influential people that we have been connected with and worked with over the years. And when I first met Ruth we spent hours really sort of unpicking the potentials of DAOs and also the potential of the art world even to begin to test and organize within this manner. And from these dialogues, we recognized our ability to complement each other mm. in terms of our thinking and Also, our experiences, um, because I think that we generally, uh, generationally, come from a different time. We also have quite a lot of difference in our upbringing and backgrounds. Mm. But we came to the sort of same gateway, so to speak. And I think we want different things from where we are. But we want them to be shaped through the same mechanisms. Huh. And I think that's also something that has kept us working together it's, and has also led to the production of the summit that we did at um, Haus der Welt, Haus der Kunst. Haus der Kunst. Right. In Munich, yeah. You shouldn't mess that up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Haus as long as you Kunst. don't
0: say Haus der Deutschen Kunst, you're fine. Haus der
1: Kunst. I mean, why the hell is Haus? It's very confusing. Yeah, we, yeah we did it at Haus der Kunst, um, but then also the book that we brought out with talk editions. And I think through this sort of kaleidoscope of our own conversations, we understood that quite often within tech... You sort of have to choose a legion Hmm. and you you shell that and you are completely on board with that. And there is like no possible veil. Hmm. And I think that what we tried to do with Radical Friends was show the movement of these emergent technologies um art and advanced technology but also to show the withdrawal the fatigue the criticism the way in which voices feed into other voices i mean i just think at the moment of all the people that were you know so key to you know, I, w- I would be, like, ringing up, like, Max Hampshire, who you spoke about Jaya earlier, mm-hmm. is working at Neem, or Paul Seidler from TerraZero, like, just before speaking to just make sure I understood, like, how the code worked, whether or not right. I was going to be, like... Booed off, like would people take me seriously? Like, um, you know, all those parts of that infrastructure. I hope um, sit within this book um, to maybe dethrone the idea of like key thinkers as individual entities, Mm. but instead show the 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 thing that kept me in this space. Which was the complementing and critiquing and hacking each other's work, yeah, all along the way, yeah. And so, Radical Friends is a collection of essays, toolkits, methodologies, um, theoretical insignia, and also prototypes and investigations of uh, real-world dolls,
0: yeah. Um, it's an amazing compendium as well. It's a it's a really incredible book. It's just funny that you bring up this collective production thing because obviously that's a very canonical part of what you're doing. And um, I was having an argument just earlier today. Well, not really an argument, actually. I was affirming, actually. Uh, but But I'm very triggered by this recent conversation around AI authorship and uh, yeah. training sets. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, this is going to be not topical when this comes out in two months. But there is an ongoing legal debate where – Certain artists, and I think Getty has sued various different AI image production sets. I think Stable Diffusion, Mid Journey, and another one. Yeah. And I listened to like a Times podcast where one of these artists was speaking about it. And the first assertion was, I need protection from my individual creation that has gone into the training of making these AIs. And now um, it's out there in the world and they're using my style and this needs to be protected, you know. And I just think that that's like – yeah, I don't know. Maybe it would be interesting to talk about that because I think this will come up again and again in this kind of AI prompt situation. And this notion that people uh, invent something and own it on their own uh, is I think the first problem with that, you know. Absolutely. It's not the training set issue. It's actually the notion of like who owns – the output that we produce in general because, I, I mean, I, I talk about this a lot in conversation with other artists who I think understand what the hell goes on. And I, I don't even think it's like an ideological thing. I think it's actually an understanding of a mechanics thing. Like meaning is produced by people together yeah, and it's also uh, significance is underlined and accelerated and signals are boosted by groups of people and – Nobody ever invented anything. It's just, like, this energy flowing through these collectives and coalescing in certain times and certain relics, right? That's how I understand how art works, you know? And there's, like, a brand— Not just art. No, not <laughs> just art, but, like, everything, right? Yeah. Like, and, yeah, you know, I understand that, like, the, the brand singular entity problem with art, where all of these kind of contributions are attributed to these individuals, is one side effect of this problematic. That's also reflected commercially, right, where um, yeah. a lot of capital will flow to these um, strong— brand signals, be it institutions or individuals, and other types of capital too, symbolic capital as well as financial capital. But I just think this AI debate underlines that problem because they're setting up like a false dichotomy. Um, So I don't know. I mean, I've said a lot, but I feel like you would know even more about that as an idea because it's like rooted into the DNA of your practice.
1: I mean, I completely agree with you, but I think also what's important to resonate with is this idea of... The individual genius is uh, very archaic. Right. You know, it's, it completely rejects this notion of social evolution. Mm-hmm. And maybe also um, in terms of, like, the market is set at a much more procedural idea of, like, survival of the fittest. Yeah. Which is inherently, I would say, a sort of neoliberal capitalist um, game play. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, it's just foolish. Yeah, in but so many levels, right? Yeah.
0: <laughs> but part of the proposition of like what I see Black Swan doing, what I see some of the tools that you've made doing, also what I see your artist position is, um, as as enacting, is leaning into a world that understands the process of um, value creation. Uh, and citation again, yeah, and well. citation a little better, right? Because mm-hmm. it is more rhizomatic. It is more, you know, multi-nodal. Uh, and, um, and that's just how things work, right? And to kind of graft a better, a more true structure onto the process of how these things are actually created.
1: Yeah, I think – I mean, I think that the citation is really important and probably, like, also, like, sits within the notion of feminist citation, Mm -hmm. Uh, Sarah Ahmed's principle, which I think also blends in really well with magic, because if you create a certain set of ingredients that you're inspired by and wish to take further and you combine them together – to create an artwork or a piece of text or a conversation or a dinner, what you were going to get out of it, you know what you've put into it. Mm. And I think that if we reject that we are taking blocks and citing them within our cultural production, we very, very quickly become almost sort of isolated. Yeah, And I think that isolation, to decide that you want to take that space of isolation, must also come with effective privilege Hmm. to understand that you can take that position through arrogance or belief, um, but that you also have enough that you don't need the community.
0: Right. So you kind of like... The resources that you have available means that you're able to isolate yourself because the collective production that happens to create all sorts of types of value systems is that work is being compensated for so it's done by other people. You're sort of outsourcing your participation in a group. And that's what the excess of capital can do, give you that option.
1: Yeah, I mean, then basically your life is like framed around extraction and consumption.
0: Right, yeah
1: which I think we already do so yeah and that's so enamored with the reproduction of it through the individual genius yeah i mean i think also this um topic around ai mm. um art production is really interesting when you look at the sort of timeline of technology mm. you know what happened when the camera turned off?
0: Sure. Like, look, yeah.
1: The death of painting. Right. Like, the death of drawing.
0: Yeah. Like, that totally happened. Like, yeah. No. But also I think just that interface, right? If, if, if by the radical success of these engines, which yeah. are essentially, if you frame them in some ways – They could be seen as like engines for collective production in a way Mm -hmm. if they're framed like that, right? They draw on stuff that we know that we can name, actually. I mean, these training sets are vast, but they are finite. Yeah. And um, so you know where that, quote-unquote, knowledge is being drawn from, actually. It's structured somewhere in there. And then you know that what you're contributing, quote-unquote, to the process is actually just typing in a set of – things that you bring together, right, through a process yeah. that has also been collectively designed and iterated. And then what you spit out, I think people intuitively know, is not totally theirs also, no. you know. And, and that's maybe an interesting model to engage with as a better understanding of what it means to produce an artwork anyway. So maybe that as a model, that whole system yeah. as a model, brings a more intuitive understanding of collective production anyhow.
1: And how do we then compensate for that collective production. Right. And how do we credit for that collective production? Yeah. And I think maybe those are the interesting things about AI production is, you know, how do we then attune them into um, modules? Mm. But I don't think the interesting thing about that conversation is about who owns what. Right. It's, I think, more about how do we then um, begin to compensate? Yeah for what labor has gone into that.
0: Yeah. And that's really interesting as well, right? Because it's like, it's kind of impossible to individually compensate, I guess. Like technically, if if something's trained on like 40 million somethings...
1: Well, it would be just an extremely small percentage. Well, exactly. So are you
0: going to get one cent... Once a year, I mean, like the Spotify situation, right, or whatever. Yeah, it, that's not really a very effective economic model for any participant, right? So nobody no, would. No,
1: that's even less than art theory writing. Right. Exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, like... And nobody would opt into that system, right? No. If, if that was If that was a question, so so the notion that some different way of understanding the distribution of compensation, maybe shares, yeah, yeah, for, for example, example. Yeah, uh, yeah, is is a much better way to understand what that is. Yeah. I mean, maybe this is a good uh, transition into, uh, we've described it a little bit or, or touched on a little bit some of the projects of what you have done. Do you want to talk about anything that is coming up in the future that doesn't have any concrete manifestation yet? You know, we talked about when these energies coalesced in certain groups. Are there future groups that are currently emerging that you're excited about things uh, uh, with or that you can talk about kind of as they happen? What's the radical contemporary penny uh, participation uh, rhizome look like?
1: I mean, you know, I'm always on the gather. <laughs> like, <so laughs> I'm always, like, crushing on <laughs> different <laughs> models and disciplinaries uh, and definitely people. Um, I mean, I think at the moment, like, these pools are really kind of growing mm. and um, they have different uh, spillage. Mm. And I think that they're They're growing in different directions that have kind of come through the learnings Mm. and maybe also the unlearnings. I think that a lot of these different groups that I've been involved in over the years, um, they're sort of maturing at the moment and um, it's coming to fruition what people need. Mm. You mean what
0: participants in those groups need, yeah.
1: Yeah, and, you know, I think many of those groups at the moment are at quite um, a crucial age in sort of how they tip. You know, it's sort of always been historically proven that commercial ventures or legally binding ventures – have often outlasted any sort of um, more informal communal communities, even when those communal communities haven't been, or not in places of scarcity. Yeah. You know, if if they've been in places of abundance, that they have had shorter timelines. Right. Um, and I think that's something um, at the moment is... Many of these projects are, like, looking now at three- to five-year timelines Mm. and what roadmaps and pathways that we want to accomplish together. So, yeah, I think at the moment it's uh, all the projects are still running on a course, but it's very much at this um, seed-sowing moment. I mean, maybe one thing that I can spill a little bit is... extremely excited about the fact that Black Swan Berlin will go into its first um, trial year Mm. in partnership with Light Art Space. And simultaneously at the um, blockchain lab uh, at Serpentine Galleries, myself and Ruth are working on translocal model of Black Swan Dow, which will look at the idea of micro different artistic communities, but then also allowing them to feed back into a web of knowledge and production. Hmm. So there are sort of like two things that are I'm very excited about. Uh, they're unfolding at a quite rapid pace. And with Om um Social Club... This is still very much my day job, right. I would say, yeah. rather than anything else. Um, and yeah, I think the enamor to continue to create uh, temporal potentials still gets me. Right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> from from sowing those seeds, maybe uh, as a kind of last prompt, can I ask you to read your seed phrase. phrase? Yeah, yes. your seed phrase. Um, that would be uh, really amazing.
1: So my seed phrase was worlding, citation, hacked, ritual, retrotopia, chaos, compulsion, microgrids, twisted, hosts, caution, mutable.
0: That's a beautiful collection of words. Uh, there's maybe one word that jumps out to me that I know that I don't really know what it is, uh, can you, can you unpack what a retrotopia is? Uh,
1: yeah. I mean, retrotopia is actually um, coined, I believe, by Sigmund Bauman. Mm. And he wrote this book where he explores the idea that we have, like, lost touch with the drive to create utopias. Mm. Obviously not the... The idea that we will eventually live in a utopia, but the idea that utopias inform our next passages of time societally. And those visions have become redundant. And the vast populace is instead of um, creating these visions of utopia, they're often um, looking at the past. Mm. And building around past visions, um, which I think is is definitely what we see in terms of this sway towards um, centralized governance, um, right-wing ideology, the increasing levels of fascism, um, gender inequality, the way in which legal... Governance is often manipulated or played on um, for larger larger global frictions that can play out in different, um, maybe more cloak and dagger ways, whether that be through the physical incantation of war hmm. or whether that be through, you know, the... The UK um, recently, England just pulled out their contestation law against Scotland for transgender rights. You know, these, these are all very manipulating moments that we, you know, sometimes when I think about like this long list, it's like, I always think about this protest banner of, like, I can't believe we're still protesting this shit because, you know, these things are not so aged that we have forgotten them.
0: Yeah.
1: And so this is what retrotopia means. Mm. But why I find it particularly exciting (laughs) is that I think the reason why we have retrotopia is because we are changing the world. I think that the small moments that you change and you create space and you bring down parts of um, established society, that's when people begin to to harden their responses. Mm. Um, I think that... Small wins often create huge backlashes. And I think that that's what we see quite often at the moment, that we are progressing. There is definite societal change. And what we're seeing is for those people who do not wish for those policies to change, that they're going to war with us. Mm -hmm. And so I think that um, as much as... It feels like a very dystopian tale right now it actually shows that um you know we're winning
0: mm. so actually the the emergence of retrotopias is a signal that things are changing
1: yeah otherwise we wouldn't need it
0: mm. a beautiful idea and um <laughs> maybe an appropriate place to say Thank you so much for being with us on Seed Phrase, Penny. It's uh, just been such a pleasure to speak to you. That's it for this episode of Seed Phrase. Thanks so much to Penny for opening up a window into the hopeful possibilities of collective production. Her multifaceted projects remind me that artistic experiments can be inspired and informed by new technological paradigms, but they don't have to be limited to the political norms or even the technical limitations that those models are forged within. Seed Phrase is generously supported and produced by the New Institute in Hamburg, was recorded at Studio Yacht in Berlin, and is edited by FX1 in Hamburg. The music featured in this podcast is by Amnesia Scanner, from their Web3 project, Scammer, which was released as a series of CC0 NFTs. Thanks again to the New Institute for providing this space, and to you for listening to my conversations.